love Thanksgiving as a reminder of that. Big things, little things. Little Eli, my little 20-month-old, just had the flu, and the Lord brought him through that. Very thankful for those little day-to-day things that the Lord does for us, as well as the big things, right? Um, Family, church family, and even going back to little things like the weather. That very thing that most of us complain about, but yet that is also from God's hand. And Thanksgiving is a good time just to have that thankful heart. 1 Peter 2, we're going to start in verse 11, and we will read through the beginning of 3. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows and suffer when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Father, fill this time with your spirit that we may hear your word and that we may act on it. Thank you for your spirit so that we can actually act on the word that enters our ears. Forgive us, Lord, for our unbelief. We pray that you would help it. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone that exercises knows that you have to discipline yourself to reach your goal. Even your pastor knows this really well. He's actually a very good exerciser if you will he does a lot of basically crossfit is what it is all sorts of weight training and running Um, I myself am also a runner and whenever there's a goal you're trying to meet you have to discipline yourself to reach that you have to train yourself to reach your goals my very first marathon um, I had been running for years and I'm like psyched up also scared about my very first marathon and I here I am running I'm in mile 10 feeling great you know it's like in my mind it feels like a slow motion movie because I feel like I'm doing so good 
I get to mile 15, still my pace is great. I get to mile 18, 19, and then I hit 20, and it's like I enter a different realm. I have a, this suffering that I have never felt before as a runner. Mile 20 was a game changer. It's something I had not experienced. And so by the time I hit mile 22, I was faced with the dilemma as a runner, do I walk? That's the question every runner does not want to have to answer. You don't go into a race and decide to walk. I wanted to finish, especially at mile 22, I wanted to get to 26.2 without walking. My very first marathon was a great experience, but in that respect, it failed me. And I ended up walking at mile 22. And to my surprise, the pain at running that I thought would go away by walking got worse. It was the opposite of what I was hoping would happen, which brought to my mind a great illustration of how in our Christian walk, when we are suffering or going through a trial and we don't feel like we can make it, remember that it's always worse to give up than to persevere. So a couple years go by and I am able to do my second marathon. This is actually right after we got back from Greece. So here I am in Greece. And of course I'm not running because we're doing international travel. But I have built up my miles by that time and so I was able to have a little bit more experience 20 at mile 20 and beyond and once this time when I hit mile 20 that suffering was still there but I had trained myself how to suffer and so from mile 20 to 22 I didn't stop this time from mile 22 to 26 to I actually finished a marathon without walking. Why? Because I had trained myself, not just in the discipline, but I have trained myself how to suffer. And as believers, with all of the trials that we go through, we have to recognize that our trials are our trainers for glory. And you have to train yourself how to suffer well. All of our trials are simultaneously used by two people. All of our trials and suffering are simultaneously used by Satan and by God for their own purposes. Satan wants you to give up, right? He wants you to renounce God like he tested Job with. God is trying to form in you um, the heart that looks like his son. And so as we think about all of our trials... We have to remember who we, are going, who we are going to submit to at the end of the trial. The most extreme example of a trial of this nature would be death. In Hebrews 4, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Our worst enemy, death. God has used it for his own purposes. What's interesting, in the Garden of Eden, what was placed at the east gate? The cherubim. 
to keep sinners from eating from the tree of life and living forever in that sinful state. So even though our sin brought about death, the Lord allowed death to be a, ve- a vehicle to free us from a life of perpetual sin and being an enemy of God forever. The training of suffering takes place through submission. One trial that we all face in many different ways, depending on what you are tempted with, is just temptation. That would be a way that we are tested. That would be a way that we suffer. What are you tempted with? And we have to come to terms with who will we submit to? Will we submit to God's word or will we submit to our flesh and Satan. In 1 Peter here, the first call is to abstain from fleshly lusts. We have to train our minds to understand what the temptation is trying to do. Train our minds to think how God thinks. First of all, we are an alien. This is why we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. This is not like an alien from a Hollywood movie. However, the alienship that Peter is talking about here is describing us as otherworldly. We, we are of a people who are actually filled with the Spirit, allowing us to be different than the world. We, we, are, we actually are not slaves to what the world is slaves to. Our temptations also wage war against the soul. This is not just a scuffle where... You know, there's minimal consequences when you give in to a temptation. Satan is attacking your very soul. There are spiritual, huge, eternal ramifications with our temptations. Another reason that we would persevere through temptations is because our excellent behavior, when we submit to God's word instead, leads unbelievers which in the text here, Peter calls Gentiles, to glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, the day of visitation can be seen a couple different ways. First of all, it could be the point at which unbelievers come to saving faith, or the day of visitation could be the point at which unbelievers recognize that God who is, is who he says he is. Either way, The day of visitation for the unbeliever is the realization that God is real. And so are our works, are our lifestyles supporting who God says he is? So that on the day of visitation, unbelievers are like, your life matches with reality. Are abstaining from fleshly lusts, whether it's sexual, whether it's envy and pride or jealousy, our ability through the Spirit to abstain from these things leads others, unbelievers, to glorify God. We also need to train ourselves to deal with trials involving authority and injustice. In the text here, we have Peter talking about submitting to governmental authority. Now, governments are there for our protection, correct? In many ways, and 
not everywhere in the world do people respect their governments, not even throughout the United States, but at least in Louisville, Kentucky, most people you talk to would respect governmental authority. The most um, immediate touch we have with this would be our police officers. And we know that um, they are there for our benefit. And so it's easy in a situation like that to respect a governmental authority. That's not quite where he is really challenging us. A harder situation to respect and submit to the government would be in paying taxes. Because this is where injustice comes into play. Are taxes evil? No. But are taxes always done correctly? No. So is tax evasion okay? No. Because you're not submitting to the governmental authority that God has placed there for you. This is why it's so hard. However, submitting to the government, Peter says, will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Even though people think we're crazy for submitting to injustice, this is ultimately a way that people are led to believe in God. We also need to submit to masters or personal authority. Are we training ourselves to submit to authority at the governmental level? Are we training ourselves to submit to personal authorities in our lives? The example here that Peter gives is of masters and slaves. Now, this is not legitimizing slavery, but he is describing a reality that happens, so he's telling you how to honor the Lord in that situation. And why is submission to even a master and a slave relation important? Because it exemplifies Christ's likeness. Peter calls us here to submit to masters who are unreasonable. Again, this is something that most of us don't have a really good connection with. We've not really experienced masters in slavery. Believe it or not, this is something that's still a reality today, but most of us haven't seen it. Slaves often suffered unjustly. But yet, God is calling even this horrible situation to be redeemed. He's calling these slaves who are often beaten. He's calling these slaves who are mocked even when they do good to submit to their masters. And this finds favor with God. So then we have to ask the, ask the question here, can this, te this text apply to us while still being faithful to the text? I would say yes. In hermeneutics, when you're seeking to understand a text, you search for the context, right, in order to gain your application. In other words, what is it saying originally so that I then know how to apply it to my life? However, an implication of a text goes beyond what it originally meant. You never want to say, you know, this um, can apply to anything that I feel like it should apply to. 
However, here, and often in texts that don't really relate to us directly, can relate to us by implication because of a lesser to greater argument. An example of that would be someone might say, the Bible talks a lot about loving my enemies and not as much about loving my friends. So does that mean that loving my friends is less important than loving my enemies? No, it's a lesser to greater argument. In other words, in this illegitimate situation, masters and slavery, you need to submit. And so in a legitimate situation, like you and your relationship with your boss, you also need to submit to your personal authority. And so I'm so thankful for the scripture that touches us directly in our lives. And all of us at one time, whether it's now or in the past or sometime in the future, you will have a boss that annoys you. You will have a boss that will even treat you poorly. But if this is indeed a lesser to greater argument, then submission to injustice even in the workplace is applicable for our everyday life. And this finds favor with God. Peter also describes Christ as our example. And so the big question mark here is, yeah, that's pretty generic. What is he our example of? And in the back of your mind, as you read Peter, you kind of know what the answer should be. But you're kind of afraid to say it. Christ is our example of what's the whole book of 1 Peter about? Suffering. Oh, man, that hurts. If Christ is our example in suffering, then that means we're, number one, going to go through it, and number two, we actually need to get good at it. Christ is our example for suffering, so let us train ourselves to suffer well. 1 Peter 4 talks about, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, um, arm yourselves for the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. No longer to live according to the lust of the flesh, but according to the will of God. Train yourselves to respond in humility, patience, and love with those who are wrong, even when you are right. Jesus was an expert at this. If anybody understood suffering, it would be Jesus. If anybody understood suffering unjustly, it would be Jesus. He was the person who was actually perfect, even though he was reviled and mocked. Things that we experience in a mild form day to day. But we know that imbalance that builds up within us because when people uh, bring us down unjustly, we just feel the need to correct the wrong, which is where anger comes into play, which is where jealousy comes into play. But Christ truly was the perfect example of suffering unjustly. How was he able to suffer so well? As Peter gets to uh, the middle of this por portion here, in verses 23 and 24, this is probably the apex of First Peter. 
how was Peter, or Jesus rather, able to suffer so well? Even though he was perfect, he was mocked. And it almost looked like on a regular basis, he just overlooked the injustice because he didn't revile in return, right? He didn't utter threats back to the people who were threatening him. So it's almost like he just blew it off. And so people like us who are Christians that are called to love our enemies are a little apprehensive to do that because we feel like it's an act of overlooking the injustice. We feel like we need a little bit of anger to correct that injustice. We need a little bit of retaliation while loving them mostly. But we don't really understand justice if we do that. Jesus understood justice perfectly, which is why he loved his enemies, which is why he didn't retaliate in return. Peter tells us exactly why Jesus was so good at this. Because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus cared about justice way more than we'll ever care about. And he knew that the proper way for wrongs to be corrected was by actually letting God do it. That's how he's our example. That's how he suffered so well. Is he let God judge the injustice. It's okay to love justice, but don't try to take God's place. Also, I love how Peter tells us here what Jesus was able to accomplish by suffering so well. Consider the glory that Jesus secured through his suffering. His was the ultimate suffering that brought about our healing from sins. What was Jesus' ultimate suffering? Dying on the cross. And had he given up, had he not trained himself to suffer well, he would not have secured our salvation. Be patient in the bondage of your suffering and watch God set you free from your enemies. Unfortunately, most of the time, our enemies can often be ourself. Our trials of anxiety, our trials of being angry, of holding on to things, trials of control, which is what leads to anxiety and fear. All of these things are manifestations that we don't actually believe God. We don't actually believe that God is the judge. We try to control our situation. And then he shifts in chapter 3 and says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. I find this a very interesting shift here. He's talking about injustice, trusting the Lord to be the judge, and then he shifts and says, In the same way, you wives be submissive to your husbands. It, so we have to ask the question, what does this mean? In what way? In what way do wives submit to their husbands? I think this understanding of marital submission is revolutionary. And this applies to husbands as well. But since we're talking specifically here in Peter about authority and those under authority, that's why the focus is on the wife here. 
Whenever your husband, I'm a husband, does something stupid and then makes the wife look bad for it, i.e., you making the mistake and then getting mad at your wife, the wife here is called to have a humble and quiet spirit like Sarah. The wife here is called to love her idiotic husband anyway. Why? Because the wife is able to entrust herself to a faithful creator who judges rightly. There is a God who will right the wrongs of your spouse. You don't have to. You can actually love your spouse and let God take care of the rest. That's what sets us free from living like Christ. To living like Christ, excuse me. The spouse, the wife, is to win them by their behavior. Without a word, I believe St. Francis of Assisi is quoted by, uh, with saying, witness at all times and if necessary use words. Now, we know that has to be a little bit nuanced because you have to use words in order to preach the gospel because it is words. However, there is an element in that that is true. And here we see that the wife is able to win her husband without a word by her good behavior. Your trials will train you for glory or they will be manifestations that you don't really believe God. Over and over again in Scripture, we see that our faith must be proved. And it's through trials that our faith is proved. Obtaining, as Peter says, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We need to understand the need to fight injustice. All of us have that need. We hate injustice. But God doesn't need our help to correct it. One of my favorite examples in Scripture is Peter and Malchus. When Peter and Jesus are in the garden and um, all of the guards come to arrest Jesus, Peter is enraged with his sense of injustice, right? Understanding just how righteous Jesus is. Why in the world would he ever be arrested? So he draws his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. And you would think that everyone there on Jesus' side would cheer, and some of them probably did, except Jesus. Jesus rebuked Peter for cutting off the ear of Malchus, who was arresting Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. What did Jesus tell Peter? Do you not realize that I could have called 10,000 angels? I don't need your help. I can accomplish justice. Peter also did not realize what stopping this would have done. Jesus was on his way to the cross to die for our sins, to die for Peter's sins. And Peter, here and at another time, was trying to stop this plan. The time when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Jesus has a plan for glory through suffering. Are we training ourselves to win the prize? Paul talks about persevering to win the prize. Believers need to train themselves for the purpose of godliness. We train ourselves for all sorts of things, especially physical fitness. 
But how many of us train ourselves for the purpose of godliness? This is one of the reasons that God gives us suffering and trials. 1 Peter 4 talks about, but train yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Hebrews 5, concerning Jesus, says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And I've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. If there's something you're not good at, get good at it. You can't just say, well, this is the way I am. I need someone else to come alongside me. I'm just not good at hospitality like they are. Well, get good at hospitality. I'm just not as humble or patient as they are. Well, get good at being humble and patient. You see, as believers, we have the spirit where we don't actually have to stay the same. We can actually change. I mean, that's the age-old question that people always ask. Can people change? Humanly speaking, no, they can't. They might change their behavior, but believers can actually change from their sinful behaviors, from being an enemy of God. We should not be surprised at the appearance of of injustice. How has God judged? First of all, he's judged in the past. At the most pivotal time in history at the cross. And so when we are facing what we would call our enemies, people who annoy us, and we want to wish them harm, and in a real sense, we want their evil and hatred to be corrected, we can pray for justice to be done while at the same time praying for judgment to fall on Christ on their behalf, just like it did ours. It's amazing how God can accomplish justice and save the sinner. That's fascinating. God's judgment is also present. Whenever you feel like people get away with things, they don't. God's judgment is past. God's judgment is present. God's wrath in Romans is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness by the fact that people are in their sins. It's, it's a big cycle to them. They think they're free by living the way they want to, but really they are slaves. And that is God's judgment. God's judgment is also future. And so when we feel like evil people are getting away with things, we have to remind ourselves where indeed is our hope placed. Because if that bothers us so much, your hope might be in the wrong place. You're looking for the here and now, forgetting that God's not done with his plan yet. God's judgment is future. Peter tells us to place our hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will judge his enemies. 
in the scripture, we have a reference to Babylon um, that is theoretical while also being a real place. Babylon is where King Nebuchadnezzar is from in the book of Daniel. But as the New Testament picks up Babylon, it also becomes this picture of the evil city at the end, which includes the real Babylon, but it also includes other cities. It's the city of man. Even as Peter writes, he refers to Babylon. He says, me and the people in Babylon greet you. Well, Peter's not in Babylon. He's in Rome. And so it's this theoretical um, idea of the city of man. And I say that because in Revelation 18, we see how God will judge our enemies in the future. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her, to the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensually. To the same degree, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. You can entrust yourself to him who judges right, to him who judges righteously, because God doesn't miss any act of injustice done to you, nor is there any creature hidden from his sight. Be patient through your trial and watch God take the bondage of your suffering and turn it into freedom just like he did your old enemy, death. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for these people who encourage me and I pray that your word would encourage all of us. And uh, Lord, thank you for your spirit that we can actually put this into practice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.